Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. You are about to meet and get to know pastor, writer, director, producer, teacher, civil rights activist, domestic violence advocate, Cassandra Green. Whoa. For more than a dozen years, Cassandra has directed the reenactment of the 1946 infamous lynching murders of two black men and their wives at George's Moore's Four Bridge. Her efforts are chronicled in the film Always in Season. Cassandra has conducted workshops, retreats, and seminars on domestic violence, relationships, and communication, and has written plays and skits for several nonprofits about bullying, sexual abuse, and human trafficking. Her TV show, Miss Fanny's Neighborhood, is a work in progress for BOP TV Network, where she's also a producer. In 2016, Cassandra was the recipient of the Hope Award, as well as Women of Influence Award, and in 2009, the NAACP Award. She's on the board of several organizations, including the Southern Christian Leadership Conference for Georgia's DeKalb County. We've got lots to talk about with this creative mover and shaker. Cassandra, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I often ask this of my guests right off the bat. After I do their introduction, does it ever give you pause in terms of what you have accomplished in your life? (laughs) No, it doesn't, actually. I don't feel like I've done enough. That's my thing. No matter how much I do or how much people say that I've done, I always feel like I should be doing more. Well, there are only so many hours in the day, woman. I know. (laughs) Remind me of that. (laughs) So tell me, are you Georgia born and bred? No, actually, I'm from Charleston, South Carolina. I'm Charleston, South Carolina. I'm a Geechee girl, Ah. uh, born and raised. Yeah, I left uh, in my 30s. And um, Charleston, of course, uh, to me is deep south, just like Georgia. And we have some of the same uh, racial overtones as uh, as Georgia does. So um, I feel like I came back, stepped back in time when I came in to Georgia as well. The good thing is I'm in Atlanta area, which is a huge metropolitan area. So you don't see as much of it as I, I've seen in Charleston. And so that obviously had quite an impact on you. Where did you go to college? I went to Friendship College in South Carolina. I went to Western Oklahoma State. I've gone to school quite a bit, Uh, so so I keep going back. I I believe you never get enough learning, so I I love learning. Oh, that's that's terrific. So Mm -hmm. when you got to college, was there an idea in your head, I want to be a teacher, I want to be a psychologist? No. It was pretty much an open slate for me because I wasn't quite sure where I wanted to head. So I said, start, just start something, start doing it. And then, uh, you know, I decided on business first. I was a business major. Then I went back to school and and got into early childhood education. And then I went back to school and got into human services. So, So it's just like I said, it's been an evolving thing for me because I feel like your path changes sometime as you move along you know, at at different stages in your life. I'm 60 now, so now I'm dead on track. I know exactly what I'm supposed (laughs) to be doing. (laughs) When did you determine that you wanted to become a pastor? I never decided that I wanted to become a pastor. I I was actually uh, abused by a pastor as a kid and uh, sexually abused for several years, and I, I hated religion. 
I hated religion. I didn't want anything to do with people that said that they were religious. But um, as I got older, I found that God had chosen me. I hadn't chosen him. <laughs> he chosen me. So uh, and then I, I realized that, you know, all people that were and I'm not religious, Sandy. I'm spiritual. I always tell people that, I, you know, I'm a Christian, but I'm not religious. I am spiritual. And I believe that's really important. That's personal relationship. So that's what, I, what I'm about. Well, you just dropped this bomb, and I would like to go back to this, to say mm-hmm. that you were sexually abused by somebody who you trusted and believed in. How old were you when this happened? I, I was actually four when aye he started aye molesting aye me. Aye yeah. yeah, I was four, and he molested me until um, I was 11, almost 12. Oh, my so, gosh. Yeah. And, and nobody knew this? No, no. And I was too afraid to tell because he was my grandmother's boyfriend. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. This sounds yeah. like, a, a, you know, some kind of a, a a crazy drama, except it's all too real. Yeah, it's oh all real. Oh, my mm-hmm. gosh. And so mm-hmm. did your family ever find out about this? Um, I was so afraid of my grandmother <laughs> that I did not tell her until I was 37 years old. Holy cow. Yeah, 37. So, and he was dead by then. So clearly, this had such a seminal impact on you based on what you've chosen to do with your life mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, domestic violence advocate and, and sexual abuse. I just can't imagine what that was like for you. And so yeah. your parents obviously never knew, and you just kept this secret. Well, my mom died when I was 12. I was the oldest of five children. She was 29 when she died. And my father um, totally ignored me, never had any relationship with me. So, (laughs) so I had a very interesting childhood. So uh, yeah, I was raised by my grandmother, which gave my predator um, easy access. Of course, of course. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I'm just struck by how much you love life in spite of oh, what your background was like, you know, the, yeah. the, this yeah. is just, it's jaw-dropping to me, Cassandra. It's really very impactful yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. Either we will let the past dictate who we become, or we can make sure that we alter the course that, the, that may have been set. You understand? Because I could have been very bitter and angry, and I was. I was for years, but I had to make an active choice not to allow what had happened to me in my past keep me bound for my present or my future. So that was a conscious decision that I made and that we all have to make when we've had, you know, horrible things happen to us. Did you have anyone along the way who mentored you, who supported you, who was there for you, or did you forge these paths basically all on your own? All on my own. You know, you saying that just now, it actually brought tears to my eyes almost because I felt, you know, very emotional because I literally was one of those people that had no one that I could turn to coming up to share all of the pain and stuff. No adult that I felt like I could go to. I mean, Eve, no safe I did place. it on my own. You had no, no safe place. No safe haven. No safe haven. Nowhere. Wow. Nowhere and no one. Oh, my goodness. And there, whatever grit and determination you were born with was what mm-hmm. made you soldier on. I, I, Absolutely. Cassandra, I, I'm just, wow, I'm gobsmacked. Mm-hmm. And I'm also, mm-hmm. uh, I just mm-hmm. feel so blessed 
to be having this conversation with you. You pursue all these different avenues. What spoke to you the most when you were finishing your college education? I don't know. You know, I have experienced so much pain in my life that all I knew, all I can tell you, Sandy, what I knew for sure is that I wanted to help people not experience the kind of pain that I was in. And education wasn't what did it. It was none of that. That didn't direct me. It was like this inner guiding voice that kept telling me, you know, I'm going to throw this out there. This is a a scripture that God gave me years ago. He said, there is a bomb in Gilead. I didn't understand what that meant. But if you know anything about it's in the Old Testament, and it meant that there is healing for whatever you go through. And I had to literally take that as my my mantra. You know, that was my that was my thing. Um, whatever hurts me, I can get over it and then I can help other people get over it. So when I got out of college, it had nothing to do with a degree to go do something. I always wanted to help people heal. Bottom line. Because that was helping you heal. Helping me heal. And that's what people don't get. You don't close yourself off or go in a box when you're really hurt. What you do is the more you reach out, the more you tell, the more you talk about what you've been through, the more healing comes to you. And if we could get that in our head and don't let people make us feel ashamed, people can make you feel ashamed of something that someone did to you. Why would I be ashamed to talk about the man that molested me when he was the one that did wrong, not me? Why should I keep holding the pain, suppressing the anger? No, 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 no. I'm going to talk about it. And the more I talk about it, the more healing I get. And I see that same thing through the people that I interact with that are hurting. So that's what freed you. Absolutely. Absolutely. But not for nothing, Cassandra, that took you quite some time to get to that point. Absolutely. Yes. Completely and totally on your own. Yes, yes. You know, um, even with Moore's Ford Bridge, right, I know we're going to get to that, but just just give you a little preface to Moore's Ford Bridge. When I was asked to do Moore's Ford Bridge, I had left Charleston because of a racial incident where I had a group of white supremacists to come at me. They, they wanted to harm me because I was standing up for an interracial couple. So my thing has always been to stand up for what was injustice. I just always had that. Even as a little girl, I would stand up for people. So, you know, if something is either in you or it's not, I feel like fighting for justice has always been in me. Yeah, it's almost like it's a no-brainer. It's a natural act. You could, not, you could not, not, not do it, you know? That, that's it. That's it. No matter what I've gone through, I always, you know, am trying to help somebody else get through whatever it is. What year was that racial incident in Charleston? 1989. And you were? 30-something. Uh-huh. Yeah, 1989. And it was devastating because Charleston was my home. But after the incident, I literally hated everything that had to do with Charleston. So I left and I really go back. My family, you know, is always like, why why don't you come home? Why don't you visit more? But it's something about being there. And I did get some relief a few years ago when the Charleston Nine were killed, you know, because I grew up a few blocks from Mother Emanuel Uh Church. Uh Mm -hmm. Had been there many times, had been there many times. 
So I went back the day after uh, the nine were shot at Mother Emanuel, and I started my healing process with Charleston, and I had to do that. So I went back. I took pictures as a director, as a filmmaker. I wanted to document what people were thinking, what they were feeling, and that's what I did. I went into Charleston, and I started taking pictures. I started talking to people and filming them. You know, what does this make you feel like? How do you know why are you here? Blah blah blah. White people, black people, Asian people, young people, old people, and and when I got done, you know, really quickly, when I got done, I went to my car, and it was like, you have to get healing from what happened to you in 1989. So I went, picked up the police report from the, it was three incidences that these men put me through, these white supremacists put me through. And I went to the police department and they only had two because they had been Hurricane Hugo that had knocked out a lot of the files. I got the, the reports and I went and sat in my car and I began to read the reports and I had a total meltdown. I mean, I was screaming, and it, but it was healing for me. And that's what we have to do. Whatever hurts us, we have to confront that thing head on so that we can move forward. And that's what happened to me on the day after uh, the Charleston Nine were killed. So these men, these perpetrators mm-hmm. in Charleston were never arrested? Yes, one of them was arrested. There was one that pointed a sawed-off shotgun at me. I heard something in my yard. (laughs) I I heard something in my yard. I opened my door. Here was one of my neighbors standing there with a sawed-off shotgun pointed at me, and he called me the N-word, B-word, and he said, if you don't get out of this neighborhood, you know, we'll kill you. And um, I slammed my door and slept on the floor, even though I was just a few feet from the phone. I was so terrified, Sandy, that I could not crawl from that spot on the floor to maybe 10 feet to my my phone in my home. Wow. Wow. So, yeah. And how long were you living there? Um, After that? No, to when that happened. Oh, I've been here about maybe two, three years by that time. But this is the thing. There were white families, mostly white families, and there were like two or three black families. But when this interracial couple moved in next door to me, that's when all hell broke loose. Uh, that didn't go over very well, apparently. Not at all. Mm. Not at oh all. Oh, my God. Yeah. What made you decide to go to Atlanta? Actually, it was a marriage. Um, after I left Charleston, I went and got married in Oklahoma. And while I was in Oklahoma, my ex-husband said, hey, I want to go to school in, in Atlanta. And I was like, well, okay, you know, that was fine. And so that's how I ended up in Atlanta. And that's been your home ever since? That's been my home ever since, 1989. 1990, actually. We got here in 1990. All right. Let's move over to the 1946 lynching at George's Mm -hmm. Moore's Ford Bridge. Why did that speak to you in a way that other incidents did not? It didn't speak to me. The president of um, the National SCLC, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, Dr. Charles Field, he came to me and State Representative Tyrone Brooks. Representative Brooks came to me um, saying that Dr. Steele wanted to do a commemoration of the lynching and uh, since no one had been found guilty, and they wanted to know, would I be interested in doing the project? Well, I was not interested in doing the project because of what I had been through. So it wasn't even a thought. You know, you mean like it was we, too personal you know. for you? It was too personally painful? Yeah, it was too, it was, yeah. It was, I mean, you know, you're talking about me dealing with Klansmen and all, and I was like, uh, 
no. And then I thought about it. He said, well, you know, well, just think about it and then, you know, let me know. And so um, I thought about it. I prayed about it. And then I told him, you know, yes, I would take on the project. So um, 2020 will be 12 years that I've done it. So at that point, you were just doing reenactments and Mm -hmm. this was before the film was made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Talk about that experience of staging these reenactments. And who did you get to participate? And where did you, quote, show them? <laughs> the reenactment, okay, is actually done in Monroe, Georgia, where the lynching took place. So most of the scenes that are done are done on the actual spot where these two couples experienced the different atrocities. And then... The final scene is done on the field at Moore's Ford Bridge on the field where they were killed. That was scary, um, but I found that most of the people that participate in the reenactment are actual actors. Some are amateurs, but many of them I recruited because I've worked with them on different projects. Did you have difficulty casting? Yes, I did. (laughs) Even though... They wanted to. A lot of my white actor friends was like, I can't, you know, I just, I can't say the N word. I can't, you know, Mm -hmm. they, they were like, I just can't do this, you know? And until recently, most of the Klansmen were people that were doing it before I got there because the, the reenactment has been done a total of like 15 years. So I came in on like year three, maybe. Mm Mm-hmm. But the guys, some of them were already there, and they were like college professors, white reporters, white college professors, and they were amazing. They were absolutely amazing. Does every year that you stage this also just have an incredible impact on you, even after all these years? Yes, it does. We get extremely emotional. It doesn't change. Every year when we get on the field, I don't know, it's it's so crazy because I start getting full the minute we get on the field. And then, you know, my actors, same thing. They start feeling really emotional. And that's why, uh, Sandy, we get together before I I prepare them. I personally prepare lunch for 30 people. Hmm. And I, we sit and we have lunch together and we talk and we laugh with each other. We comfort each other, you know, just to sort of get people prepared. Right. For it. Then when we're on the field, if you were to look at pictures that people have, the white and black actors are embracing each other. Some of them are very emotional, so they're literally holding each other up. But there is a bonding that takes place between us that I, I really can't, you know, and we get together when we're not doing Moore's Ford Bridge, like we'll go to the movies mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. or we'll eat, meet and have lunch or, you know, just to keep that camaraderie uh, going. So it, it, it becomes more, now we're family. Right. Everybody's family. Right. Yeah. In the times that we live in currently, this must mm-hmm. resonate in a very different way than it did maybe 15 years ago. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Because of the atmosphere that has been set. You know, I don't even recognize this country right now. I'm just being honest, Mm -hmm. you know, as Mm -hmm. an African-American. I don't even, I don't recognize this country. I don't connect right now. And it's not so much the country because, you know, the country is the country. But the people, the the divisiveness of, of the people, it really hurts me because I'm a person, I'm always trying to bring people together, right? 
And when you have um, a, an atmosphere that is set right now where the Dems against the the Republicans, the blacks against the whites, mm-hmm. the Mexicans against the, you know, I mean, what this, yeah. what have we come to? What, I mean, this is not what this country is supposed to be built on. And but we have uh, it, it comes from the head down. We know that that's even biblical. It comes from the head down. So when you have the wrong atmosphere set, then you get all of this mess that's going on now and separation and divisiveness. So, you know, I mean, the irony about this, Cassandra, is you have your work cut out for you. Absolutely. And that's why when I do, when, like I go places and I speak on, on racial reconciliation. And when I do the Q&As for the different film festivals, I've done film festivals all around the country. And my thing is, how do we take it from here? And that's something that always in season does. It, it begs the question, okay, this is what's happening. How do we get from here? How do we fix what is broken? You know what I'm saying? Because yes. we have to start somewhere. And and my thing is, and I've said this, this is, to me, is very strong. When you get angry, when you see something I've done or the reenactment, and you get angry, I did my job. If you cry, I did my job. Because more than likely, those emotions are going to cause you to have a conversation. And that is what we need right now. We need to have the conversation. You're so we need good. to have that conversation. You've got my vote, woman. <laughs> I'm curious, Cassandra, how much of your work involves students? Are students aware of, for yes. example, this reenactment and the film Always yes. in Season, that that's yes. part of your audience, in quotes? Absolutely. Last year, we had 350 middle school-aged children to come and see Moore's Ford Bridge. We did a special presentation just for them at the bridge. And when those three buses came with those children and we saw them walking, I'm going to tell you, we just started crying. Um, When I say we, the actors Mm -hmm, and I, mm -hmm. we just started crying because it was like the march at, at the bridge in Selma. You saw all of these kids walking down toward the bridge. And it was like, Oh my God. I mean, we just all were overwhelmed because it's important for us to know, like people always ask me, well, in the film, you see kids and look at the look on their faces. They need to know that that is the history. And if we don't do something, that history can very easily be repeated. Mm -hmm. So it's important that we know our history. And most times they don't tell black history the way that they should. They leave out a whole lot because I guess they don't want to embarrass people. But listen, if your grandfather was a Klansman and he killed people, that's between your grandfather and you. But the history is there, and we can't ignore that history. For sure, for sure. Talk to me also about some of your other projects. I mentioned in the introduction Miss Fanny's Neighborhood. Yeah. What's that about? That's my baby. Um, <laughs> you have a lot of babies. <laughs> yes. Miss Fanny's Neighborhood is actually the story of an older black woman that lives in the hood, and she fights crime in her hood. And her main statement is, not on my watch. Like, you're not going to do that in my neighborhood on, while I'm alive. So so she gets into all of this trouble fighting um, crime in her neighborhood. Her son actually is the district attorney of the county. And he lives in this, you know, upscale 
area and he wants his mom to move out of the hood. But she's like, no, I raised you here. It was good enough for you. It's good enough for me to stay in. And so she gets into trouble. It's, it's, it's funny, but the stories are all stories, uh, Sandy, of people that I've dealt with over my 37 years in ministry. That's dealing with everything from sex trafficking, domestic violence, bullying, all of it. It's true stories of incidences that I've dealt with over the years. Is it a little autobiographical as well? Yes, I, 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 you know, and people were asking me, why didn't you play Miss Fanny? Because I don't like really being, I love being behind the camera. I do acting, but my main thing is behind the camera, writing and directing. So that's why I didn't want to do it. So what else do you have up your sleeve, Miss Cassandra Green? <laughs> <laughs> my organization, WOW, W-O-W-W. Wow Ministries. We've been around for over um, 20 years. Warriors of Worship and Warfare. So Warriors of Worship and Warfare, uh-huh. W-O-W-W. Uh-huh. And it's, it's my ministry. And, and that's what that's what we do. We, uh-huh. we help people. And then I have um, the other part of that ministry is witness. Women in transition needing edifying, stress-free surroundings. So that's doing resourcing for women that are in domestic violence um, or sex trafficking or, you know, human trafficking. And so, you know, that's what we do. That's what we've been doing for years. Well, what do you do for fun? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I haven't found that yet. Um, you know what? Uh, this, this, is, this is so crazy. But this will be my 21st year. 2020 will be my 21st year that I haven't even been on a date. Not one date. Well, how do you have time, for God's sake? I know, I know. But everybody keeps telling me, you got to make time. But I haven't, you know. And um, it's just been about doing the work because I just, I'm very passionate about, you know, what I do. And, and, you know, I'll be marching with somebody at the Capitol building. Or, you know, I may be marching with SCLC. Uh, There's an older gentleman. He's in his 70s, Nathan Knight that is marching. If something goes wrong, he's marching. And he's like, Cassandra, I need you to meet me down at, <laughs> you know, and I'm there, you know, and I'm there. But um, activism is my life, you know, right now at 60, it's my life. And that's my main concern. I need to make a difference. <laughs> that's an understatement. <laughs> Cassandra, I just can't thank you enough for sharing who you are with us. Absolutely. I just feel... Usually I'm not at a loss for words, but um, (laughs) you've made that happen. I hope that you'll be in touch with us and whatever new comes in our life, we can always do a part two. I think that this has been just the most wonderful conversation, and I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your very busy schedule to speak with us. Thank you. It's been an honor. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.